0: Thank you Alex thank you for the blessing of leading us in worship and preparing our hearts it's good to be back with you over the last couple of weeks we've had a couple of uh, things going on we had our two weeks ago we had our annual men's camp out we had a really great time with our guys lots of time of great fellowship and food and then uh, a great time of together and challenging and and instructing so men can do what men are to do the Lord hasn't established what they're supposed to be like so we took some time with that and I'm grateful for Ben coming and, and uh, being in the pulpit and delivering a message to you and then last week i was able to have the opportunity to travel with my youngest lane and uh, we had a great time together and and grateful for daniel and, and as i say often we have a lot of men who are able to teach and provide ministry leadership here at maria and for that i'm very grateful to the lord and so again you're the beneficiary of of those guys being here so i'm grateful for them i'd like if you would uh, turn in your copy of god's word to first um, timothy chapter 2. It is uh, great to be back in our study. If you've not been with us, this is a a continuing study, verse by verse, which is our habit as we go through the Bible. Teaching through 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus, and that is entitled Instructions for the Church for Teaching, Leading, and Equipping. And so we are in chapter two. We finished up chapter one last time a couple weeks ago, and now we're starting a new section together. We've entitled that Guidelines for Public Worship and specific corporate prayer time, which is Paul's uh, emphasis here. So look at 1 Timothy 2, verse 1, if you would, and we'll read together all the way through verse 8. First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions, and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men for kings, verse 2, and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity, verse 3. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who, verse four, desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Verse five, four, there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, verse six, who gave himself as a ransom for all and the testimony given at the proper time. Verse seven, for this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying. As a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth, verse 8, therefore I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Stop right there. Taylor's the tale is told about a small town that had historically been dry. Then a local businessman decided to build a tavern. A group of Christians were, from a local church were concerned and planned an all-night prayer meeting to ask God to intervene. It just so happened that shortly thereafter, lightning struck the bar and it burned to the ground. The owner of the bar sued the church, claiming that the prayers of the congregation were responsible. The Church hired a lawyer to argue in court that they were not responsible. The presiding judge, after his initial review of the case, stated, quote, no matter how this case comes out, one thing is clear, the tavern owner believes in prayer and the Christians do not. A.C. Dixon, in his book, Evangelism, a Biblical Approach, wrote this, which I really love, quote, when we rely upon organization, we get what organization can do. When we rely upon education, we get what education can do. When we rely upon eloquence, we get what eloquence can do, and so on. Nor am I, he says, disposed to undervalue any of these things in their proper place. But when we rely upon prayer, we get what God can do, end quote. The first chapter of this first letter to Timothy, we've seen Paul give Timothy an overview of some of the problems facing Ephesus and now under Timothy's care. But as we get to chapter 2, Paul will address public worship, obviously because he has to tackle it then there were ongoing problems that needed addressing. And I think we understand that by now. If Paul is addressing something in one of the letters, there's obviously a difficulty, which is why he's having to bring it up. And this section, of course, is connected to our previous section in chapter 1, And verse 18, uh, Paul commands Timothy to fight the good fight. And then we saw in 2 Corinthians 2, 9, um, for this reason I wrote that I might put you to the test whether you're obedient in all things. And as we looked at and asked the question, what does it mean to fight the good fight? We saw a couple of principles that were very, very important. Fighting the good fight is the duty we saw of the believer. It's their responsibility. And we saw that Timothy's, duty and your duty and my duty, which is fighting the good fight of faith, is summed up in the word, what? Obedience. As we understood what fighting the good fight meant, it just meant as you understand what the Word of God says, what it means by what it says, then you begin to do it. And to the extent that you do it, faithfully, you are fighting the good fight. Because the Christian life is a struggle, and we looked at all of that as we looked at, the, at those intervening uh, verses there before we get to the place where we are now. It's a constant warfare where each believer has to do their duty, and that duty, we saw, is whatever it is the Lord has given us to do in whatever circumstances we're in, wherever we see the battle going on, we bring obedience to the Word of God into play. We act in the way the Word has told us to act. That's our duty every time. So summed up, obedience is our duty, and by that we fight the good fight. I think we understand that. Now, when we move into this new section, Paul gives Timothy a series of commands that Timothy is to pass down to the church, and right on down to Berean this morning. And fight the good fight, Timothy, and in this situation, Paul says in verse 1 of chapter 2, first of all, then, so as you understand that language, this is a logical resumption of previous material. So he's calling on what you've understood up till now. As a result of all of that, then, the corporate worship in Ephesus has some problems, so here's how you're going to go about addressing those problems And of course, Timothy fighting the good fight is bringing this to the Ephesus' attention, following through as it needs to be followed through, and right on down to us. And the first thing Paul addresses is corporate prayer. And it obviously is that Paul's concern, we're going to see it's his concern that corporate prayer include prayer for the lost. And so it'll be a very important section that we're going to go through. The church has messed up the gospel. We've already looked at this. They were picking and choosing out of the Old Testament. If you do this, then you'll be saved. If you do this, then you'll be holy. And special knowledge is needed, and only a few can understand that. And so many of their own number had been shipwrecked because that happens when you mess up the gospel. If the gospel doesn't go out clearly, people don't really get saved. And if they're not really saved, then they move on to a life that looks like Christianity but has no power. And many in their community were still lost as a result of false teaching and false teachers. And so at the beginning of chapter 2, Paul gives explicit instructions to the Ephesian church on how to pray and conduct the church so that it could remain effective for the work of the kingdom. And that's the right of Jesus to do that, isn't it? Because 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, we saw the overriding theme of both of these letters is that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church. Now, you wouldn't know that there were actually specific instructions about how one ought to conduct themselves in the household of God if you looked at a number of the false churches today because they just kind of do whatever they want. But there is specific instruction. It's not negotiable. We're supposed to follow through with it, and we're going to see some today. So I'd like you to look, and we'll track along with Paul. Look at verse 1, if you would, back again. He says, First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions, and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for Kings, verse 2, and all who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Let's take a look at that. And I think you're going to find some very, very important things we're going to have to learn about prayer here. And I want you to take the time to point it out and point out these principles. And my desire, of course, is to help us incorporate them. And I will say very transparently to you that in my study over the last couple of weeks, as I began to look at it two weeks ago and then this week specifically, this is a very hard passage to preach. Not because it's hard to understand, uh, not because... Uh, It's awkward in any way. It's hard to preach because as soon as you read this passage, you realize that your prayer life is probably not where it needs to be. Some to a greater or lesser extent. And I think you might find this out as you work through that you have the most uncomfortable feeling in your own heart as you go through. And we look at the things that prayer is supposed to include, which is what Paul is giving here. This is what corporate prayer is supposed to look like in the church, in her meetings. And so this is very, very important, and we'll look at it. And the first thing we notice, the first... Uh, first thing that uh, pops into our our heart as we think about these things. Corporate prayer is to be expansive and expanding. Corporate prayer is to be expansive and expanding. And so that is, I think, as you look at verse one, you just kind of see the circle expand out very, very quickly, don't you? First of all, I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men and all inner authority everywhere, and then that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. There's just this world perspective, isn't there? is it isn't just just close to the, to the heart here in the church. This has a very, very broad application. And so he begins to take a shot at this exclusivist attitude being taught by the false teachers we've already looked at. Uh, God desires all men to be saved. We saw and we will see in verse 4, and he desires us to begin to pray in that way. So first principle is supposed to be expanding and expansive. And then our second one, corporate prayer has required elements. And I think this is going to be instructive and humbling. You're going to find out that it isn't just whatever you want to do. Okay? So, let's look at it. Corporate prayer has has required elements. Let's look at a couple of the elements and we'll work our way through and you'll kind of see how we're going to do this. So, look at the elements or aspects of genuine prayer. First one is entreaties. Entreaties. As you come to prayer, it requires some elements. The first one is entreaties. Uh, the root of this noun is is uh, to need so it will be an expression of our needs now that's not foreign to us is it when we come to prayer we understand we bring our needs before the lord uh, recognition though of course in bringing our needs is a recognition of our own destitution which would include asking for forgiveness and offering it to others because we don't get forgiveness unless we're offering it that should be part of your prayer lord help me not to be holding on to anything against someone because as soon as i do that my prayer to you then is moot. My prayer for fellowship with you doesn't go any farther than our own forgiveness of other people. And again, recognizing our own destitution, it's a literal recognition that we own nothing and need everything to be given. So it's a lot bigger than just the grocery list we normally bring before the Lord. It's, it's very clear in James chapter 1, verse 17... Uh, Every good thing given, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. And I think that's very, very important to recognize that everything that you have is very clearly given from the Father, and that we are destitute in that respect. We don't bring anything to the table that we really need. The Lord provides all those things, and although these are not put in any significant order, what I mean is, as we think about entreaties, prayers, petitions, and thanksgivings, I think this is as likely a place to start as any particularly a literal recognition that we have nothing apart from God's goodness. Secondly, second element that's required, according to the Apostle Paul, are prayers. That's a very common word. It's the general term for prayer time, an element of corporate prayer. Its main meaning is conversation with God. And obvious as that may sound, its emphasis then is on worship and reverence. A conversation with God is not going to be a nonchalant, back it in however you want to do it. The understanding gives us some insight into Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. If you remember, his disciples came to Jesus, and they asked this question, Lord, teach us to pray. So what are they saying? Teach us how to have a conversation with God. Now, we've turned that prayer into a prayer itself, which was completely, uh, that was the un, uh, unintended, that's not, in fact, you could make an argument for 1 Timothy 2 as the content of your prayer, certainly not this. He gave us some hooks to hang the prayer on and how to start. And, and if you think about prayer as conversation with God, then when Jesus said, pray in this way, our Father who's in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, I would propose to you that we in America know very little about how to approach royalty. In fact, it's annoying to our European friends that uh, we don't know how to approach a king. I would propose to you that... Um, to approach King Charles and march into his inner court and say, hey, by the way, I had a few things to ask of you. You'd probably be intercepted before you got very far, would you not? And even if you got there, there would be a way that you would need to come into the kingdom, right? And so Jesus makes it pretty clear when you're going to pray, how are you going to pray? You're going to start by saying, our Father who's in heaven, your name is holy. That's a good way to start. It puts us in our correct position and the Lord in his correct position. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What's that mean? We're really interested in what you want to accomplish. Apart from my needs today, my entreaties I may bring to you, the main thing is that your kingdom be accomplished. Why? Because this is your world. And so again, I think it, it's instructive for us to think about what Paul's saying here and then think about what Jesus had to say and then begin to merge and marry those things together. And and the point of closing out our prayer time Uh, Jesus has made it very clear as we come to prayer. Not only are we supposed to come into prayer by recognizing God's holiness, Jesus himself gave instruction in John 14, 13, whatever you ask in my name that I will do so the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I'll do it. What's the main emphasis? To come before the Lord, and when you're all done, you really want his will to be done, and you're asking it all in the name of Jesus. Everything Jesus stood for, why he came, what he did, all of that so that being glory to Jesus himself. That will change your prayer life if we don't go any further, if we're just interested in what his kingdom is about and his will to be done, and that we ask in Jesus' name, because it's pretty clear that's what Jesus intends. So the word prayer time has everything to do with worship, with our appropriate submission to God, the Father, and Christ as Lord. Prayer time is to make prayer, that's the idea. The verb is to make prayer, worship God by speaking to him. It's used 36 times in the New Testament every time you see it or you say the word remember its emphasis. And that can really be revitalizing the corporate prayer time in your own heart, especially in light of the irreverent things that go on in the name of prayer in false churches today. Now look at the next one. Petitions. And it's a noun. It only occurs twice in the New Testament, so it's pretty important KJV uses the word intercessions. You might see that in your translation, which makes us think of prayers for others, except that's not the emphasis. That's the English word and gives us the wrong direction. It isn't praying for others that's intended here because the passage says already for men and for those in authority everywhere. So obviously we're supposed to pray for others. So it's not that. The idea is, the verb form indicates a falling in with a person. What's that mean? To draw near so as to converse intimately, to come close. You see the difference? It's not telling you to pray for other people right there. It's already said you're supposed to pray for other people. The idea is to come close and pray intimately. Prayer is worship and reverence. But there's also the sense in which we draw near in intimacy with God, and all that because of Jesus. Free access to God with childlike confidence. That's certainly the idea of Romans chapter 8 and verse 15 where Paul says to the church you've not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again so you've come to faith and you've not received fear as a result but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out Abba, Father in other words the words for the Father who cares the one who's close and the Father who is See, that's who you pray to the one who is and is self-existent and the one who cares and then what's the next one? So we have entreaties, prayers, uh, petitions, and then we have thanksgiving. Eucharistia, it's it's, uh, expressions of gratitude, expressions of gratefulness, no matter the immediate condition, regardless of whether you're going through a hard time, you're going through... A difficult health scare or you're going through some difficult financial times or or relationships or whatever it is no matter what the immediate condition is every believer should realize they enjoy many undeserved blessings from God would you agree with that church you enjoy many undeserved blessings of God and if you don't think that right away I would just say that just shows you how far away from the reality of your relationship with him and the blessings that are on your life you are So wrapped up in narcissism, you forget that the Lord has blessed you greatly. And the question that uh, prompts increased thankfulness is this, and I've asked you this before. What if you only had today what you gave thanks for yesterday? Think about that. Think about your life right now. And think how revitalizing it is to understand that part of the requiring elements in prayer is thankfulness. And think about if you only had now what you gave thanks for yesterday in your life, how barren would your life be? Would it still be rich like it is or would it be very, very barren because you've ignored all of that? You see, this is a very, very important passage. And even in the glorified state, think about when you get to heaven, you might think, well, perhaps, you know, petitions and thanksgivings and and entreaties and all that might stop. Perhaps, uh, but I would propose to you that Thanksgiving will still be in place. I think in the in the in the redeemed state when we fully realize all that we really owe See, because right now we have a trouble, we have some trouble grasping that, don't we? What do we really owe? We, we have a hard time thinking about how rich our salvation is and what we really owe for what we have. And I think that in the eternal state where our needs will be met and our dwelling places will be with God and, and some of the things will probably drop off as far as that goes. I think our thankfulness, our sincere gratitude will increase, our gratefulness no doubt will increase. And just as a footnote, beloved, as you think about thankfulness, the absence of gratefulness puts us in very, very bad company. So think about your prayer life and think about how much thankfulness is there. But in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, we notice, and we'll get here in not too long. Men, in the end times, it says, will be lovers of self and lovers of money and boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents. Here it is, ungrateful Unholy. Now we can see those trademarks in our society right now, can we not? But ungratefulness then is a trademark of the unredeemed. It's a trademark of the end times. I would propose to you, a lack of thankfulness would put you in very, very bad company. Romans chapter one, verse twenty-one. Again, as we think about the unredeemed, as we think about what is come upon and the the uh, the judgment that comes upon the unredeemed. Verse twenty-one says one of the reasons why the Lord must judge them and will judge them and an indicator that they aren't redeemed, even though they knew God, every single person on the face of the earth knows that God exists. Did you know that? Very, very clear. Regardless of what they may say, even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God, mark it, or give thanks. Two things. They missed honoring him as God for some of the things that he's made and understanding his position. And secondly, thankfulness for all that they had because the Lord allows common grace to fall on every single person on the face of the earth. If you're an unredeemed farmer in Iowa, you're going to get the same rain as your redeemed person right next to you. You know, marriage is one of those blessings of common grace that that everybody gets to have, and children, and and you can go on and on. Health and joy and and, uh, the delight in the created uh, cosmos, all of those kinds of things. But the Lord says you know, a lack of thankfulness is a reason for judgment on the unredeemed. So very, very important. Now as we think about As we think about our main uh, points here, we think about expanding, expansive prayer, required elements, and then the third one is corporate prayer has required objects. And that shouldn't surprise us. Look at verse 1. First of all, then, I urge that entreaties, prayer, petitions, and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority. So the objects are all men, kings, kings, and all who are in authority. Corporate prayer, how someone is supposed to conduct themselves in church, this is what it's supposed to look like, it's going to contain these objects. And let's start with the first one, all men, very broad expression. It's not limited, certainly not restricted to just believers. In fact, we're going to see later the unredeemed are on Paul's mind here too. In just a moment, we're going to see that. And so the types of elements of prayer he just mentioned then, so the entreaties, prayers, petitions, and thanksgivings are to be made on behalf or directed to everyone. Do you see that? The idea is that we can't pray too widely. And if you think about that, that means prayer can have an impact far from you. If every believer is following this command, it's possible that no one would be left unprayed for. Is That's an amazing thought, isn't it? that if you prayed for all the people connected to your life or ones you're aware of in your reading or in your study or your exposure or whatever, and all of us are doing that, what different kind of world might we live in? Do you see? I kind of wonder what difference it would make if the church began to pray correctly. Because we're so used to nonchalantly walking into prayer thinking we have every right to be very casual about it. And I would propose to you, I think you can see, it's not quite as casual and nonchalant as you think that it is. So the types of elements of prayer are directed to everyone. We can't pray too widely. You can have an impact that's very far from you. And if every believer is following this command, it's possible that no one is left unprayed for. And the obvious meaning of all men really made a big impact on me. Because I just found that, you know, you hold a lot of your prayers very close to you. It's very local. And and I would think, and I would imagine as you begin to come to grips with what we just said, you're gonna find some discomfort in your current state of your prayer life. But in particular, because Paul's addressing corporate prayer, this is what's supposed to happen in the church, in their small groups, in their Sunday schools, in in whatever it is, see, it's gonna impact what should get prayed for in her meetings, see. In other words, we're instructed to take it farther than our limited sympathies our prayers must embrace the globe as well as our nearest and dearest and Paul isn't Paul isn't done instructing the church on how she should pray not just all men we're to be making these intercessory kinds of prayers look at verse 2 for kings and of course, kings and all who are in authority are subsets of the first group. Are they not? If you're praying for all men, obviously kings and, and all who are in authority are inside that set of all men. But a kings, basileon, has as a true, that's, that's the name for power. Those who are in power, foundations of power, that's the idea. And so the general designation for a supreme ruler, someone who is at the top of the pile, if you will, um, in charge of most things. It applied in Paul's time to the Roman emperors. And then, not just that, but then all who are in authority. In authority, it's, it's a verb we're, we're very familiar with. Hooper echo. And so that's an overseer, someone who has preeminence, which just takes in anyone who has a say in ruling, both from very local to regional to state to national uh, to world, whatever it is. And so just takes in all of that. And we know from our study through the book of Daniel, because you may say, well, it's kind of hard because we have a clown show going on or dumpster fire in a number of places right now in the world. Well, Daniel, chapter 4, verse 17, if you remember, Nebuchadnezzar um, was uh, acting a little uh, arrogantly, and the Lord had warned him numerous times through Daniel. And then when he finally acted arrogantly again and said, look at all this that I've built and all that I've done, whatever, he was was, uh, consigned to act like a beast for a while. And then we get this instruction to Daniel from the angel, which says, in order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind. Well, that's obvious, right? The Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind. I don't think anybody would argue about that. And bestows it on who he wishes and sets over at the lowliest of men. And there's where we probably take issue. Lord, really? This dude? This woman? These people? Right? And, but the emphasis, see, everything I've just said is wrong. That's not, the, that's not the emphasis we're supposed to have. And yet that seems to be our first response, as we said a couple of weeks ago, is to rail. And that's what we said to the men as we were meeting together. It's to rail against those things instead of do what the Scripture says to do. We see the same thing in case you're just thinking, well, that's just you know, Daniel's time. Romans chapter 13, verse 1. There is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by the Lord. So he puts whoever he wants to in authority for his own purposes and good pleasure. To bring judgment on people or to bring joy, right? When the righteous rule, the people rejoice. When the wicked rule, the people what? Mourn. So we understand that. And perhaps we learn lessons and it causes people to pray. And it does all kinds of things, see? When we see the direction things play, uh, the country is going. So we see the Lord's instructed the church to assist in the ruling By intercessory prayer, by bringing these needs before the Lord and praying for all men and praying for rulers and all in authority, we are assisting in that ruling. Do you see? Again, a huge impact perhaps that we're missing. It's also important, I think, to note that this group we're instructed to pray for corporately and privately might be most easily hated by believers, And if you think about Paul's time, these are the days of the infamous Nero. I don't think that we're in that dire a situation yet. Christians then were not generally protected by the government at this time, so believers are instructed to pray, and this type of prayer should be exemplified in corporate worship. That's what's supposed to go on in the church. And so I think we can see just from our first few principles pretty clearly if we stopped right here, wouldn't you say that corporate prayer is to be expansive and expanding? If we just started there, I think that'd be a good step. Secondly, corporate prayer has required elements and so we need to include them. And three, corporate prayer has required objects and we need to make sure we include them. Now look at the last part of verse two and and the first part of verse three and we'll see our, our next principle. So that we may lead, he says, A tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. So our fourth principle is corporate prayer has focus. And the first thing it's supposed to focus on is the church. How do we focus on the church in prayer time? Well, he tells us right here. So that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. His prayer here then, if we connect this, for those in authority implicitly asked for peaceful conditions in which Christians could freely live out exemplary lives. And when that happens, the unsaved would speak well of Christ and his teachings. Paul used the same language in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 11. Think about this. He says to the church in Thessalonica much what he says to the church in Ephesus. To make it your ambition, mark it, to lead a quiet life, attend to your own business... Work with your hands just as we commanded you, so that you'll behave properly towards outsiders and not be in any need. You have a good witness in the community when you make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. And we see now to the letter to Timothy, we're supposed to actually pray for tranquility and quiet life that we may lead that life which is pleasing to the Lord. In particular, as you think about rulers from Romans chapter 13, verse 3, rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior. So, quiet life and tranquility, minding your own business, working hard. But for evil, do you want to have no fear of authority? Would you like not to be afraid? Do what's good. You'll have praise from the same. You see? I mean, it's almost the same exact understanding. And we've talked about this before. But the undisputable fact is this the best argument for and against Christianity is Christianity. What do I mean by that? Well, just this. Precisely how Christians practice their Christianity is either in favor of it, it makes it look good, or makes it look really bad. Christianity lived out correctly can make inroads where few other things can. And, and we say this a lot, and we said this to the men on uh, a couple weeks ago. It's certainly expected by the Lord. And it would just seem to be obvious that a believer's desire would be to live what we learn. What does the Bible say? What does it mean by what it says? How does that apply to me? Obedience is living what you understand to be true. And fighting the good fight is that lived out. But whatever it is we do for the kingdom, our desire would be that what we do best is our living. I think that's very clear from Paul. Because, as we said many times, if our faith is to be believable, and this is on our website, there must be behavior that flows out of our faith. And so the first prayer focus, as you think about the church, the reason for our prayers is we, who's this? That's the church, right? Paul says, we, it's the church body, it's Paul, it's Timothy, it's on down to us, may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Now let's look at those. We may lead, the verb is subjunctive, and we understand subjunctive, don't we? There's some question of doubt. There's a contingency there in place because that's not what's going on in Ephesus right now. Paul's correcting bad corporate behavior, bad corporate prayer time in the Ephesian church. So that hasn't been going on, and so there's some question about it, but Paul's given instruction to correct it, and then he has hopes that they're going to respond. So that's the idea. And then two adjectives, tranquil, which has to do with the absence of outward disturbances. So one of the things we focus on as we think about the church, we pray for tranquility on the outside. And that's why it's connected to rulers and all in authority and men everywhere because that can make a big impact on the church. And then quiet, which has to do with personal peace, to be at peace, if you would, on the inside. So let's apply it. The church is to pray for all men everywhere and for all leaders and for those in authority so that the outward disturbances, market, can be minimized and we can be at peace on the inside because when outward disturbances are multiplied, it's unlikely that we're gonna be at peace on the inside. And maybe you felt that a little bit with inflation and all the, the question marks about the way foreign policy is going with our own nation and how we're interacting with people, and you're just thinking, you know, hey, listen, I'm, I'm feeling a little bit uneasy. Well, then I would, I would encourage you, begin to pray for rulers and all who are in authority, and pray that we might have a tranquil and quiet life because that's exactly what we're instructed to do. It has a focus. So the absence of turmoil, the absence of worry, since believers have to be subjected to rulers who can make life difficult for everyone, but especially for the church, then prayer is necessary to market. Over, the whole thing is to overrule them. Do you get that? The church can pray for the tranquility and peace and receive it as an answer if we're doing what we're supposed to do because this is the Lord's will that we pray for it. And if it's the Lord's will that we pray for it, then it's in his power to what? To give it, right? And that just makes sense to us, doesn't it? Prayer is necessary. And in that sense, believers can be spared from outward trouble and inward worry and unease. And then two nouns here after the adjectives. In all goodness, he says, and dignity. So the manner of the life Paul's proposing is to be exercised in, first of all, godliness. So we're praying for the church to be godly. What's that mean? This is the attitude and conduct measured by God's standard. Okay, This is why we read the word every day. Why? So we can, part of it is to hold up the holy standard and understand what God expects from us. And he has some expectations. So, conduct measured by God's standard. Godliness is a manner of life which properly reverences God by behavior. This is the vertical part of behavior. As God sees it, how am I living? And then the second word is dignity. This is the horizontal part of behavior. We're supposed to pray for the church that they live in dignity. What's that mean? This is what type of behavior will entitle believers' respect from people around them. Paul has made it very clear. These are the things we're to focus on in our prayer time as we think about the church. And another part of that focus is the church is supposed to have, not just uh, the prayer is supposed to have in the church, not just on the church, but prayer time is to focus on the Lord. And these are our next two stops here. Look at 1 Timothy 2.3. This is good and acceptable. What's good and acceptable? All these parameters for prayer. Just in case you were wondering if the Lord approved of it, Paul makes sure that you understand this is what's good and acceptable, not what's been going on in the church up till now. This is what we're supposed to do in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men, verse 4, to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So praying and living this way is pleasing to the Lord. Is that important to you? I think when we say, when we see this is well-pleasing to the Lord, we should really take notice as you read through the Bible and you say, this is well-pleasing to the Lord. This is what the Lord desires from you. This is his will concerning you in Christ Jesus. Anytime you see that, that that's pretty important. Do you want the Lord to be pleased with this part of worship, this part of corporate worship that's going on in the church? Then pray, he says, in this way. And as we said We're just so used to haphazard, by the way, kinds of praying. We get into very, very bad habits, or perhaps we haven't been taught. Nonchalantly approaching the throne when we're supposed to recognize God's holiness and His faithfulness and His throne and His will. And praying in Jesus' name, which means we just want it all to line up so Christ gets glory. We, are, are we really concerned that his will gets done and not ours in the middle of our most difficult circumstances? In that health scare, you want to be delivered from it, which I understand, and that's perfectly appropriate to pay, to pray for. But what if he says no? Are you okay with that? Are you okay for his will to be done, for him to be doing this for your good and his glory, both now and in eternity? See, that's the whole flip over when it comes to prayer time, to begin to think it's not my will I'm praying for. I I have a certain understanding of the the circumstances around me or in this person's life, but I don't know everything, and the one I'm praying to does, and so I'm ultimately praying for his will. But how about this? Asking God to be with us when he said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. It It goes on all the time. We heard, Lord, be with us. And he's saying, child, I have told you numerous times in the scriptures that I will never leave you or forsake you. Now, what do we mean? We mean that we really want God there. Okay? Say that. You know, missionaries have names and needs. Don't say, God, be with our missionaries. What's their names? What are their needs? Pray for all men everywhere. Pray for leaders and all in authority. There's specific things we should be praying for. And saying, God, be with us is not one of them. And we approach the throne without reverence, we approach him without worship, we don't affirm that it's God's will we really want, and we ask in the name of Jesus, and all that's very clearly spelled out for us from the Word of God. And now we can see just how expansive and expanding our prayer life needs to be. Do You see, that's why it was the first point. Man, we're we're so used to praying for Grandma's bunions and, you know, this guy's got cold and whatever, really, right up close. It's very clear from the Word of God, it's got to be bigger than that. And which, of course, that, it's supposed to be going on in corporate prayer. The elements and objects and focus and writes on down. To, and, of course, it, it bridges right down to personal prayer, obviously. We want to do, do at home and personally what we do here, right? I mean, that's, the way, that's why we preach like we preach. So you can see how you look at God's Word and you begin to apply it. And you, you begin to do that at home. You look at God's Word the same way. And when we do that, it's well-pleasing to God. And, and beloved, it sh- it shouldn't surprise us that we have these directions from the Lord. Because maybe you're saying, "Man, you're throwing a lot of requirements on prayer. I'm just you know kind of used to just throwing up prayers of desperation to the Lord when I need Him." And you know, hey, you know, if you do this, Lord, I'll, I'll make a deal. I'll do such and such for you, and and whatever. And and I think we can understand just even from a basic understanding of praying this way that that is not the way you approach the throne. Okay? And I get prayers of desperation. I understand. You know, And the Lord certainly does. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, who's the ruler of heaven and earth. I understand a desperate heart. Romans 8 says the Holy Spirit comes alongside and what? He prays with us so we'll know how to pray as we ought. And so the Lord is good about all of that stuff. But he's also given us instruction, which shouldn't surprise us. Why? Well, you know, if you think about the plans for the tabernacle and temple, was it, well, we can just make it a little about four feet wider here, and you know, it can be about two feet taller. That's not a big deal. No. What did the Lord say? Build it exactly like I told you to build it. Well, we can use this material because we don't have enough you know, seal skin. No. No, that's not what you're going to do. You're going to do it exactly like I told you. And, and what about the incense? I mean, is it really that specific? I mean, can you kind of mix it in there and take some chef liberties? No. In fact, people who did take chef liberties didn't last very long. Do you understand? This is a very important principle of it, and I don't think it's hard to grasp that when we think about God's specificity in, in everything else. Think about sacrifices and the requirements that were there. Think about that getting prepared to worship as a priest, and what you had to do for washing and what you had to wear, how you sacrificed it on the altar, what you did with the blood. Was that optional? No, because it was part of worship, wasn't it? And so God gave specific instructions. So is it surprising then that Paul gives the church this instruction from the Lord in a in a letter that specifically has as a thesis how you're supposed to conduct yourself in the household of faith, which is the church? I think I don't think that's if you think about it that way, I don't think it's a big stretch for us to understand that these instructions are important. And it's not just Paul giving them. I mean, we see them from Jesus and James and Peter and pretty much everybody else. They all agree. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior. And that is eminently important to those who call on His name, right? And to the church that's here for the purpose of worshiping Him. And then the second thing that we're to focus on as far as corporate prayer goes as it relates to the Lord is in verse 4. Look there if you wait and we're going to wrap up. Who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Praying and living this way pleases God, and praying and living this way helps fulfill the Great Commission. And that's just so cool, isn't it? It's just kind of that blanket that covers all of that. You're praying in this way, you're doing these things, you're having these people on your mind, you're having these elements involved in prayer time, you're coming in the correct, with the correct heart attitude and in submission, and then coming in close and having a close, intimate conversation, and all these kinds of things helps fulfill the Great Commission praying for all men everywhere, praying for those in authority so that we can live in tranquil, quiet life in godliness and dignity. Those are all accomplished in the salvation of the lost. Isn't that the ultimate goal, right? If we have a wicked ruler who's ruling somewhere in the the nations somewhere and we pray for that person specifically and we pray that they come to the knowledge of the truth, doesn't that solve most of the problems that we're having trouble with? Of course it does. But he wants the church to have this model he wants this to be the priority as you come to prayer. And I think it's really summed up, and I love this, um, and I'm going to share it with you. It's one of my favorite stories. It's from his article, Soul Winning Explained, by Charles Spurgeon. And I post this a lot on social, Spurgeon a lot on social media. I think you'll enjoy this. He says this, and I think this just kind of wraps up what, what we're thinking about. Quote, one thing more, the soul winner must be a master of the art of prayer. He says, you cannot bring souls to God if you do not go to God yourself. Makes sense, doesn't it? You must get your sword and your weapons of war from the armory of sacred communication with Christ. If you are much alone with Jesus, you'll catch his spirit. You'll be fired with the flame that burned in his breast and consumed his life. You will weep with the tears that fell upon Jerusalem when he saw it perishing. And if you cannot speak so eloquently as he did yet shall there be about you what you say somewhat of the same power which in him thrilled the hearts and awoke the consciences of men my dear hearers especially you members of the church i'm always so anxious lest any of you should begin to lie upon your oars and take things easy in the matters of god's kingdom there are some of you I bless you and I bless God at the remembrance of you who are in season and out of season in earnest for winning souls and you are the truly wise but I fear there are some others whose hands are slack who are satisfied to let me preach but do not themselves preach who take these seats and occupy these pews and hope the cause goes well and that is all they do. That's it, isn't it? He's captured the understanding of everything about prayer and everything about the emphasis in corporate prayer in the church. And the oars we're supposed to be rowing with, right? Not hoping the cause goes well. Spending time with Jesus, you catch his spirit. And you might not be able to speak like he speaks, but something of his essence is with you that it may have the scriptures come to life and your testimony powerful. All these guidelines for us can be summed up, beloved, in an earnest prayer for the lost. All of these, the expansive, expanding nature of prayer, the elements, the object, the focus, it's all summed up in agreeing with God's desire for all mankind. The reason we pray, the reason we do the things that we do, we pray for all men and all who are in authority is because of God's actions in providing salvation. If God desires that all men be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, we mimic that in the best possible sense, the nature of God when we pray and act to that end too. Would you agree with that, beloved? That's very straightforward, isn't it? But super hard to take in. And I know. bow and be dismissed in prayer if you would. Father, I thank you today for a great opportunity to open your word. You're holy, righteous, true. Everything you say has been tested. You've established your kingdom here. You've given us some authority here to carry out your will, and if that's what we want to do, recognize that all that we have comes from you. We don't have anything that we need. There's no good thing inside this preacher or anyone else, Father, in reality except what's come from your hand. And so we lift up this time of prayer and worship to you in reverence, recognizing we are not worthy, and yet you have counted us your own and adopted us. And Father, we know that as we bring these things to you, we come in close, even though we talk to the King of all creation, the self-existent one who's, who's been From eternity past, Father, we recognize that we can come close and call you Father, and we're very grateful for that. And Father, we remember to thank you for the things that we have, expand that in our lives, Father, more and more. Help us not to be in bad company by forgetting to be grateful for all the many blessings in our lives, and help us to expand that more and more each day as we recognize more of the goodness that you've given to us. And father as we think about our targets for prayer help us to expand out to all men everywhere it just opens up so many opportunities for us to pray effectively and if the church began to respond in the correct way and put aside falseness and and ridiculous natures of the way prayer is done in many false churches father and we did it in power because we're doing it according to your will what a difference that would make and for those who are rule and those the foundations of authority and all those kinds of things Father, we can't pray too widely, and when we do it, we create, perhaps, uh, your intervention in things that can make the opportunities for Christians to be able to shine. And Father, as we think about our focus, we think about the church, that we can live a tranquil, quiet life in godliness and dignity, And Father, I know and you and all of us know that our prayer time as it relates to the government and those people who are in authority can create because we know you have the power to do these things. And they all sit in your hand that you can create an opportunity for the church to continue to have uh, opportunity for the lost. It can dwell in tranquility and in quietness and not worried. And the more we spend with you and the more we understand you and the, and the more we look at the long view of history and your plan for the church and your plan for the world, we can rest easy knowing you're accomplishing those things according to your own power. We're simply your servants here for a temporary time. We wish to do the things you want us to do. And Father, most of all, we want to have a heart for the lost. Help us never to be far from that. As we think about uh, how many times perhaps we've shared the gospel in the last week, month, year, two years ten years lord help us to multiply that Help us not to be ashamed as we come before your kingdom someday in eternity having not shared the gospel a single time let that never be among your people whom you gave this great commission so as we pray for the the men everywhere and for those in authority and we do it in the way that you with the elements you've provided and the focus that you have lord i pray that You'll do that work, and we know that you will because you've already said for us to do it. You know that it's not being done in many cases, and that can be corrected, and to what end, we still don't know but what a joy it is to think about. So we pray all this in the name of your Son, Jesus. We wish to be conformed to his image, a reprint of him, and we long for his appearing. Help us to live that way, Father, and we say this all in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, Amen.